0: The scripture reading for this morning is for, from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13-16. through 16. Hear the word of our Lord. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. May the the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of things I wanted to uh, clarify from last week. Uh, One of them had to do with the message, the other did not have to do with the message, but your experience of hearing me preach. Um, Someone mentioned last week that I seemed a little abnormally loud uh, in preaching. And, you know, sometimes, you guys know my voice doesn't need any help filling this room. Uh, Sometimes the volume is just set a, a little high for some people, not for everybody, some if you feel like i'm too loud in the in the speaker please feel free to go ask someone in the sound booth just to turn me down a little bit it's it's okay you're not going to offend me you're not going to offend them um I, i would rather your eardrums not feel pierced by the speakers and you actually hear and pay attention to what i'm saying than for you to sit there and try to endure it and not be benefited at all from what's being proclaimed so please Please feel free to do that. Um, and then uh, secondly, I made a comment last week in relation to not being post And I'm not a post-millennial. Some of you don't know what postmillennialism is. Uh, post-millennialism is the idea that the nations eventually will be entirely Christianized from the top down. And that is the basically the fulfillment of the millennial reign of Christ through his church, that the governments... And leaders and people of all nations will eventually bow their knee to the gospel through the testimony of the church, and then Christ will come. Um, I don't I don't see that in Scripture. I don't believe that the nations are gonna grow progressively more Christianized. But I do want to clarify something I said last week in relation to that. I made the mistake of saying that the gospel would, would be preached among the nations and the church would grow and increase and the nations would be Christianized. And I said, I don't agree with that. That's wrong. I do agree with the first part of that. The gospel will continue to be preached. The church will continue to increase. And that is what will ultimately lead to the final conflict, the tipping point, between a secularized world and the church of the living God. So ungodliness will continue to increase, but the church will also continue to increase in this world. And Christ has promised that despite what we see in the West. And uh, hopefully we'll point out some of that today. So I wanted to clarify those those two things, or at least make sure you felt the freedom to get up and go uh, ask someone to adjust the volume. It's too loud. And then also clarify my position on the increase of Christ's glory manifesting in this world through His church. It will continue to to increase. Now with that said, would you please pray with me as we begin to look into this text today. Lord, You are our Heavenly Father, and You are also the blessed and only sovereign King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, The immortal, the invisible, the only God to whom belongs honor and eternal dominion. Lord, I pray that as we walk through this, the rest of this text today, that you would allow your kingly reign to really fall upon our hearts with new power, with a new sense of glory, with a new uh, spark of zeal that would infect all of our lives or that we would increasingly be those who are living lives that are pro regae, uh, lives that are for the King, not for ourselves and not for this world, not for anything other than the glory of our Lord and our Savior, King Jesus. Father, please, accomplish those ends in our hearts. We trust your promises that you will. And we lift those promises up to you now, praying that you would fulfill them in us more today. And lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, we're continuing to look at Paul's doxology here in 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 through 16, what we noted last week is that what we find Paul doing here is really praising the reality of God's kingship. That as Paul thinks about the second coming of Christ, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, our King His heart and his mind is drawn upward into worship and in holy contemplation of God's unique and utterly sovereign kingship. There are four specific truths about God's kingship that Paul is magnifying here in this doxology, in this praise of God in light of his kingship. Last week we looked at the first one, which is primarily verse 15 where we find Paul glorying in God as the sovereign king. That he is the blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. Now last week we pointed out that as the king of those who are kinging and as the lord of those who are lording, God as sovereign does not only do as He pleases among the nations and the kings and the rulers of this world, but He also demands their full allegiance. As those who are ruling in this world under His sovereign jurisdiction and by His leave, God demands that they show their allegiance to Him, primarily by bowing their knee before His beloved Son, and by paying homage to Him, kissing the Son as their rightful king. That's Psalm 2, as we looked at last week. Now, the scripture tells us that though Christ is reigning and God is reigning right now over the nations, it is only on the day of Christ appearing that that sovereign reign of God will be universally acknowledged by the world. God is king, He is Lord over all the earth. That is a reality. That is a fact. He does as He pleases. His sovereignty rules over all. You remember what the Psalms say on that. But it is not until the day of Christ appearing that all the nations of the world will recognize God's sovereign rule over them. When Christ returns, on that day, all the world will know that God is King. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue will swear allegiance to Christ as their true and eternal sovereign. But until that day, God's call to the nations is that they would swear their allegiance to that king and bow their knees now and to take refuge in his son before the time of his wrath comes and it's too late. As I mentioned, Paul cannot think about that day of Christ's coming without having his heart burst open in praise. To God in light of that truth. And as I mentioned last week, just as a side note, if we, you and I, are going to be strengthened to live lives that are truly for the King and are truly pro regae, then we also have to have this kind of eager anticipation for the coming and the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to have that eager anticipation cultivated in our own hearts. You are never going to live a life that is truly pro reggae unless you are satisfied in the reggae. Unless you are satisfied in the king, you are not going to be living for the king. As we know, it is costly to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. It is going to cost us a lot to hold true to our allegiance to His sovereign rule and our allegiance to our citizenship in heaven. To be true to that is going to be costly. The only way we're going to endure and live a persevering Christian life for the glory of Jesus Christ is if we find His glory as that which is worth living and dying for. We have to know Him as King and love Him as King and have a conscious allegiance to Him as King if we're actually going to live for Him as King. So first of all, Paul magnifies God in his sovereignty by declaring him as sovereign king. Now there are three more aspects of God's kingship that Paul magnifies here in 1 Timothy 6.16. We're going to look at those today. If you're taking notes, here are our three main points. Kids and the kid, kid bulletin. You ready to fill in the blanks? Paul not only praises God as... The sovereign king, but here in First Timothy six sixteen, he begins to praise God as the immortal king. The immortal king. That's our first main point. Second main point: Paul worships God as the invisible king. Paul worships God as the invisible king. And then, lastly, the end of verse sixteen, we find that Paul prays that the honor and dominion of the king would increase. So he praises God as the immortal king, he worships God as the invisible king, and he prays for the honor and the eternal dominion of that king to increase. That's where we're going today. Let's look at our first main point together. Paul praises God as the immortal king. Look with me at verse 16. Not only is God the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, but He is also the one who alone possesses immortality. He only possesses immortality. Now this phrase is obviously building on what Paul has just said. Paul's just said that God is the blessed and the only sovereign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And here is a reason why He is the blessed and only sovereign and the King of kings and Lord of lords. He he is those things because He alone has immortality. That is, He alone will live forever. Or has life forever. Forever. Now, a rough translation of this word immortality in Greek could be he alone has, he alone is without death or he alone possesses deathlessness. It's just the Greek word for death with a negative particle added to the beginning, which would negate the idea God alone possesses deathlessness. Now, that is why he is the only sovereign and king of kings and Lord of Lords, because he alone possesses Deathlessness. Now, in one sense, it can be said that human beings, you and I, also, sh- also have immortality. In fact, I don't know if my girls are, are ready. I didn't prepare them for this. Hey, Ruthie, you ready? No? One of our catechism questions, after talking about God giving Adam and Eve a body, the question is, what did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? Remember the answer? I'll bet you do. What's that? I heard one of you say it. He gave gave them souls that will never die. He gave them souls that can never die. Now, in this sense, it can rightly be said that you and I also share in God's immortality. God created us as living beings. He gave us a soul that will never die. That means that we will continue on forever, either in heaven or in hell. Either way, the soul endures through death. And therefore, we experience something of what it means to be immortal creatures. But there's a vast difference between God's immortality and ours. Does anybody know what that is? Well, God's immortality is inherent. Ours is not. God is inherently immortal. You and I are immortal only by extension of what God chooses to grant to us. Paul says here that immortality is not just something that God enjoys. It is something that he alone possesses. He owns it, if you will. Now, as his creatures, it's entirely different for us. We don't own our immortality. In fact, every moment of our existence is only borrowed from the immortal God. Right? We live on borrowed time. Anybody agree with that? Which is why we will give account to God for the way that we use our time. He gives us a limited amount. He gives us a measure of life. And he expects us to use it for his glory. Now, As his creatures, every moment of our existence is borrowed from the immortal God. Only God possesses immortality in and of himself. And that, nothing reminds us more forcefully of that truth than that moment when you and I come to experience our own mortality. Nothing reminds us that we are not immortal in and of ourselves than that moment when you and I come to experience what it means to be mortal. It's interesting that since the fall of humanity into sin, mankind has always and perpetually sought after immortality. Did you know that? Human beings have always sought to achieve immortality. Why is that? You ever ask yourself why? Why do we not want to die? Why do we want to live on forever? Why do we pursue medicine when we're sick? Why do we want to heal cancer? Why do we want to do do away with things like Alzheimer's and dementia? Why do we think it would be a great idea if we could somehow print a new heart on a a 3D printer, plop it inside our chest, and let us live another 30 years? Why is that a good thing in our minds? Well, that makes no sense from an evolutionary worldview, does it? Darwin's micro-mutational evolutionary theory, that's just survival of the fittest. And if you have a weak heart, then you don't need to be one who passes your genes along to someone else. You die, you die. And in the, in the, the strong survive. Right? So why, as we are as a people, even in our secularized Darwinian evolutionary society, our, our materialistic society, why are we so concerned with preserving life? It's because we were created in the image of God. And we were made to live immortally with God in fellowship and communion with Him. Now, we've divorced ourselves from God by sin. But we can never escape the reality of what God created us to be and how God created us to live. We live in God's world. And because we live in God's world and we are God's creatures, we always act in accord with our createdness. God made us to live on forever with Him. Just because we've been divorced from Him doesn't mean that we don't continue to long to live on forever. That's where that comes from. Throughout history, mankind has always sought after immortality. Certainly, we see that at the Tower of Babel, don't we? What are they doing at the Tower of Babel? They're building a huge tower in a plain so that it can be seen by everybody around they're building a big tower for what reason? To make a name for themselves. Right? To make a name for themselves. Now they weren't seeking immortality as in physical immortality, but they were seeking immortality in relation to their memory. Right? Like the, uh, the Spartans uh, the, at the Stand of Thermopylae, right? The Battle of Thermopylae. They wanted their names to live on and endure forever. They wanted their honor to be immortal. mankind is always seeking after some measure of immortality. You see that in the Greek philosophers. They sought to create what was called the Philosopher's Stone that they claimed would give people immortal existence. Obviously, that didn't work because none of them are around today. You remember the legend of Juan Ponce de Leon? Some of you do. What was he seeking after? He was seeking after the fountain of youth, right? What was he really looking for in the fountain of youth? He was looking for immortality, at least according to legend. That's what he was seeking. In fact, one reason that Paul may have focused in this doxology upon God's kingliness in relation to his immortality was possibly to contrast that truth with the claims of Caesar, you remember Timothy was laboring in Ephesus, which was a center for cult worship of Caesar. Part of that worship focused on the claim that Caesar was immortal. Here's what's interesting about that, though. The Romans only declared Caesar to be immortal after he died. I, I mean, I thought that was funny. It's, it's like an oxymoron, right? It's a It's a contradiction. That, oddly enough, at the moment that his mortality is most clearly manifest, at that moment the Romans declared him to be immortal? Right, there's nothing new about the progressive left changing around definitions of words, right? This is, this is as, old as as old as our existence, as humanity. Now, the very thing that demonstrated Caesar's mortality was for the Romans an opportunity to declare his immortality. Now, what was God's rebuke to them and and to that claim? Well, obviously, the very fact that Caesar died was God's declaration that Caesar was not immortal. Now, humanity has always sought after immortality. And I don't know if you know this. It's actually happening in our day at a rate that is unprecedented in human history. The technology giants and the elites of the world are actively devoting themselves to achieving human immortality within this century. I don't want to scare anybody with this. I don't want to disrupt anyone, but I do want you to be aware of what's going on culturally around you. You need to know this. I'm sure that many of you do know about this, but just in case you don't, I want to tell you what's going on. The elites, the cultural elites of this world and the scientific community and the technology giants are all trying to achieve immortality, human immortality through biotechnology, genetic engineering, medicine, and even trying to create android robots that will enable us to unite our human consciousness to the robot. You think I'm joking. I read an article in The Sun that described a a, a doctor in, uh, oh, I can't remember what he was a doctor of, but he was describing that by the year 2045, we will have our first transference of a human brain to a machine. By the year 2060, that technology will be open for millionaires. By the year 2070, middle-class citizens will be able to access that technology. By the year 2080, everyone will be immortal. They'll be immortal because they will live in the cloud and they will upload their consciousness into a robot. Now I'm serious, he said that. Now the purpose behind this movement, if you don't know what this movement is called, it's called transhumanism. Transhumanism. The the purpose behind this movement is to transcend our natural existence and limitations. Now, if you think about it, this endeavor makes complete sense inside of an evolutionary worldview. What are you seeking to do in an evolutionary worldview? You're seeking to survive. And for these people, this is simply the next stage of human evolution, though it's quite different than the kind of evolution that they adopt. As I said, this movement is called transhumanism. And in case you're thinking this right now, I will tell you that this is not some fringe idea that is just being postulated and theorized about by a bunch of guys sitting at home in their mom's basement. This is becoming a core tenet of secular humanity, of what it means to belong as a human being to the society that is taking place globally around us, taking shape. For example, Oxford University houses what is called the Future of Humanity Institute. And it is an institute that focuses exclusively on the ethics and actual working, the outworkings of human enhancements. You can go read more on their website about what that means, but it's basically devoted to transhumanism. That's at Oxford University. In 2017, Penn State, began publishing the Journal of Post-Human Studies. See what's involved in that. Studies about how we will become post-human. Next stage of our evolution. In fact, as I mentioned, there was an article that ran in The, the Sun of, in January of 2019, saying that, or excuse me, January of 2020, saying that the way that technology is progressing, by the year 2060, humanity will achieve immortality. They would do that by transferring their consciousness into the body of Android robots. In a Talks at Google session, you can find this. This is the April of 2019 session. Dr. Michio Kaku, I don't know if I said that right, but he is a world-renowned physicist and a theoretical physicist, particularly, but he was invited to discuss this issue of transhumanism. And he expressed perfectly the mindset that is driving the transhumanist movement in the following statement. He said, Why not become supermen and superwomen? Why not rule the universe by merging with our creations? Listen to the divine language that's used right there. Why not rule the universe? Where does that impulse come from? Where does that desire to know what is going on on the other side of the universe, where does that come from? Why was Einstein trying to figure out a theory of everything? Well, he himself said he was trying to capture the mind of God revealed in creation. Now, those who reject God aren't trying to deny a God, they're just devoting all of their efforts to their own God, right? So Dr. Kaku says, why not become supermen and superwomen? Why not rule the universe by merging with our creations? What is that the ultimate extension of? If we could create something and merge our existence with that creation, what have we then begun to mirror that humanity has never been able to mirror before? i don't think this will happen i'm just saying theoretically if it did what is that the ultimate extension of is that not the ultimate extension of the lie that the day you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you will become like god that's all this is it's an effort to further our rebellion dethrone god and enthrone humanity that's all it is Now, what's more important then what the world is saying is what God's answer is to all of this. What does God say in response to those who are furthering a transhumanist argument? What does God say to Penn State and Oxford University and uh, Dr. Uh, uh, man, what was his name? Machio, that's easier for me to say, first name. <laughs> what, what is God's answer? What is his response to their statements? Well, God's response is death. Death is the great reminder that there is an immortal God and we are not Him. Death is God's final piece of evidence to each one of us that we are, in fact, mortal creatures who live in utter dependence upon Him. And here's what's important for us to remember... As God's vain creatures succumb to their own mortality, the kingship of God, the kingship of the immortal God, is being exalted over them. Did you get what I just said? As God's rebellious, insane, vain creatures succumb to their own mortality... God's glory and His reign as the immortal king over all is being exalted over them. You remember in Psalm 22, verses 28 and 29, it says, For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. Now look at what it says after that. Establishing the fact that God is king, God rules over the nations, all nations are subject to His reign It then says this, All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Despite all the efforts of fallen humanity in this world, we will never reach the point when we will be able to keep ourselves alive. Why is that? Because God has an appointment for every single human being on this earth and he will keep that appointment. It is appointed unto man once to what? To die. And what happens in that moment of death? It says here that all of those who go down to the dust will bow before him. They will acknowledge his kingship as they succumb to death. See, in the end, God's kingship will be recognized by every person. From the greatest to the least among us, from slaves and peasants to rulers and kings, they will all come to the point, we will all come to the point where we realize and confess what Nebuchadnezzar did. Remember in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34, Nebuchadnezzar, after his reason returned to him, God handed him over to act like an animal. Then his reason returned to him. And the first thing he did was lift his eyes to heaven and bless the Most High and praise him and honor him as the one who lives forever, the one who is immortal. Praise God as the author of life, the giver of life, the one who Nebuchadnezzar says, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and whose kingdom endures from generation to generation. See, there's only one ultimate being in this universe, and he has no rivals, least of all you and me. There's only one ultimate immortal being in this universe, and he is the only one who deserves our ultimate allegiance. Now, after I've just shared with you what I've said, are you guys still with me? I went slow and I tried to speak calmly through that so that I was clear, so that you guys understood what I was saying and I didn't confuse any of my words and stumble over my lips. After what I just shared, you don't need me to say that we live in a world that is insane. We live in a world that has utterly lost its mind. And I don't mean that derisively. I don't mean that in any with any angry tone or judgmentalism. I'm simply stating a fact that we live in a world that is categorically insane. And it's not just a fringe movement somewhere outside on the edge of society, it is the core of global society. That is devoted to this kind of understanding of humanity. This is a radically different worldview than anything that has been anything that has manifested this fully at any other point in our history. What I want to bring out there is the reason I think that Paul is exalting this truth about God. In a letter that he's writing to Timothy, Paul could have worshipped God as the immortal God without writing it down. But he wrote it down for a reason, and that was to encourage and strengthen Timothy's heart in the midst of the opposition he was going to face as he proclaimed and was faithful to the kingship of Christ. As Timothy was faithful to his allegiance, he needed to remember that nothing else in this world is ultimate except God. And no matter who was opposing him, whether that was Caesar, whether that was a governor like Pontius Pilate, remember we've already seen his name here, whether that was someone sent to rule in Caesar's stead, it did not matter who it was, some city official, if they were opposing the kingship of Jesus, Timothy didn't need to worry about it. He didn't need to fret and be concerned. He simply needed to continue being faithful. Because there's only one immortal God in this universe, and that is God the Father. God the Son, God the Spirit. And regardless of the opposition of the world and the opposition that Timothy would suffer under, all he needed to worry about was continuing to be faithful to the God who is immortal. And in the end, Timothy would receive his vindication. Now, you and I, this is given here for us so that we would take heart and have the same encouragement. As I just said, we live in an insane world. We live in a world that has a radically different view of reality than we do. As the culture in which we live continues to become less Christianized and continues to revert back to paganism, the divide between those who fear God and those who worship humanity will continue to grow greater and greater. Until we reach that point of conflict, that tipping point where the world will no longer be able to tolerate those who hold to our view of reality. This is the book of Revelation. I hope you understand that. This is what history is progressing towards. We don't need to fret. We don't need to be fearful about it. We simply need to recognize the truth and be prepared to endure it. See, these two views of reality, these competing views of reality that are at work in our world are mutually exclusive. They will never be able to tolerate each other. As the Christian worldview increases, it will automatically be in contradiction to the secular worldview. And as the secular worldview increases, it will be radically opposed to the Christian worldview. They're mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. The time is coming when you and I, in greater ways than we already have, we'll have to pay the price for maintaining our allegiance to King Jesus over against the kings and the rulers of this world and when that time comes it is only this truth of God's immortality his endurance his continuance it's only that truth that is going to keep us faithful and allow us to be willing to pay that cost pay the price of faithfulness to him so Paul praises God as the immortal God and we went a long time on that I'm sorry didn't mean to go so long Secondly, we see that Paul in First Timothy 6.16 praises God as the invisible king. The invisible king. You see there that Paul glories in him as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no man has seen or can see. Now the Bible says that light is God's robe of splendor and glory. Did you know that? Like the kings of the world who would clothe themselves in royal robes, remember, don't so much do that anymore, but kings of old would clothe themselves in royal robes to try and manifest their splendor and their glory, make their importance known and felt. Well, God's glory is put on display when he appears robed in light that is inapproachable. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, it says that the Lord is clothed with splendor and majesty. He covers himself with light as with a cloak. Throughout Scripture, you may remember that when God manifests His presence, His presence is always wrapped in light. Remember the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament? When God manifested in the pillar of what? Fire and smoke? There's was light there. When he manifested in the tabernacle, or in the transfiguration of Christ during his earthly ministry, or when Paul himself was converted, what did he see outshining the brightness of the noonday sun? He saw the Lord clothed in a robe of light that outshone the sun itself. Now, what that implies is stated in the next part of the verse, that the God who dwells in unapproachable light is the same God whom no man has seen or can see. Now, stay with me. Stay with me through this. That doesn't mean that we can't know anything about God. It doesn't mean that we are utterly ignorant of God because He dwells within a light that we cannot draw near to. We can't see through. We can't peer in and see God's essence. Well, that's not true. John 1.18 says this is the very reason for the incarnation. Right? No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has done what? He has explained Him. He came to explain to us who God is. So this God dwelling in unapproachable light, our inability to see Him, does not mean that we cannot know Him and know Him in truth. What it does mean is that God in His essence cannot be captured by the human eye. That is, God resides within an effulgence of His glory that no one can penetrate. As one commentator put it, all anyone ever has seen of God is the afterglow of His glory. And the point being that though God reigns as sovereign king over the world... He remains unseen in the world. Now, there's a really important application for us right there that I want us to take note of. Just as God's person and glory cannot be perceived with the human eye, cannot be grabbed onto by human senses, so also God's sovereign rule in this world cannot be judged by human perception. Do you follow me? You're like, nah, i got to wake up a little bit. It's too warm in here. You're talking too much. If you need to stand up and stretch, go for it. But pay attention to this. This is very practical for your life. Just as God's person and glory cannot be perceived by our physical senses, so also God's sovereign rule and His dealings with this world cannot be judged by human perception. Louis Burkhoff puts it this way, God cannot be discerned by our bodily senses, and we may say by extension, neither can His dealings in this world be interpreted strictly by what we can perceive. Some of you are like, man, why are you getting so excited? Well, because of this. As the blessed and only sovereign, the Lord is always accomplishing His will in this world, even when I can't see it. You remember Psalm 77, verse 19, the Lord's way is in the sea and we cannot find His footsteps. When God moves among us, we can't discover the treadings of His feet. We can't trace out all the workings of His hands, but that does not mean that God is not working. In the most chaotic of circumstances... In this world that you and I will endure and experience, God is still reigning on his throne and he is still in control and he is still bringing his will to pass. Do you believe that? Even when you can't see it? I mean, this is the message of Job, isn't it? You lose your livelihood, you lose your house. You lose your children, you lose your health. And in your own perception of what is going on, you begin to become so utterly dismayed that you are on the brink of turning away from the faith in God altogether. That's what Job was wrestling with in the book. Remember Job 9, verse 10. Job's inability to comprehend what God was doing led him to confess despairingly, God is the one who does great things, unfathomable things, literally things that are beyond seeking out. God does great things. But look at what he says, As for me, were he to pass by, I could not see him. Were He to move past me, I would not perceive Him. God's doing wondrous things in the world, but I cannot see it. Is this not one of the greatest struggles that you and I experience in life? Our inability to perceive God and to understand or comprehend what He is doing in this world... God, raise your hand if you're with me that when you look out at the world, you are wondering, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen? See, two two hands being raised by some of you. Yeah. Like, what are you doing when you look at your own life? Are you not sometimes so conflicted by what you read in the scriptures compared to what you see happening in your day-to-day existence that you're left wondering, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. I can't comprehend. What is your purpose in all of this? The book of Job comes alongside of us as a reminder that even when we do not see the reality of what God is doing, God is still sovereignly working all things for His eternal glory and for our eternal good in Him. He's the unseen God. You remember what Jesus taught us to pray? When Jesus was teaching us to pray, what did He say? He said, Go into your inner room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is where? In secret. That means that when you go into your room and you shut the door and you pray to God, you're not going to physically perceive God's nearness. Nevertheless, Jesus says, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, the question is, do you believe enough to go pray? Or do you need some experience to cause you to pray? Do you trust in God enough as the unseen God to know that He will not let your prayers go ignored or unanswered? You remember, this is the same problem that Habakkuk was struggling with. He looked around at Israel. Chapter 1, verses 1-4. to He's looking around at ungodly Israel and he's saying, Lord, there is violence in the street. There is lawlessness abounding. Your people are sinners and full of iniquity beyond measure. Where are you? God says to him in verse 5, Look among the nations, Habakkuk. Observe and be astonished because I am doing something in your days that if you were told, you would not believe. In essence, the Lord tells Habakkuk, I'm still orchestrating my plan, and I'm still bringing, bringing glorious things to pass that you can't perceive. You wouldn't even believe if you heard about it. But I am doing grand and wondrous things, even though you can't see it. This is the main point of the whole book of Revelation, isn't it? That no matter how much evil and chaos seems to triumph, and no matter how many oppressive things, are in the world and that God's people have to experience, no matter how much it may seem that the devil and the beast and Satan is in control and running things. Who actually is on the throne? God is on the throne. Who actually is orchestrating all of history and bringing God's sovereign, decreed, determined will to pass? It's the Lamb who's standing as though slain. See, the whole book of Revelation was not written so that we could somehow plug events from the Middle East into that book and say, look, now it's happening. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to ignite faith in the hearts of God's people so that they will endure through trials and be faithful to the King. Because those who endure to the end will be saved. That's Jesus' promises The substance of his promise to the seven churches at the beginning of the letter. Endure to the end. Overcome. And you will be saved. God may be the invisible God, but he is never the absent God. You know, we sing a song that has a line in it that says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. You guys remember that? James could probably sing the rest of it for us. But, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. That is, don't ever judge God's work or his dealings with you according to your limited perception of what is going on. Don't let your feeble senses, your imperfect, sin-ridden senses become the measure by which you judge God's dealings in this world or in your own life. See, so often we allow that to happen, don't we? we let our feeble senses dictate our view of reality, our emotions, our experience, what we perceive to be going on with our own mind, rather than holding up God's word and saying, God, you have said this and I will trust in you. Rather than doing that, we let our own emotions and feeble senses become the determiner of what's right and wrong and true and not true. When we do that, we're just giving in to the spirit of Genesis 3. We're trying to determine what is good and not good for ourselves and seeking to be like God in a way we were never intended to be. Now we need to move on to the next point. But go look at Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10 when you get a chance. It's, It's okay to struggle with a sense of God's absence in this world. It's okay to struggle with the sense of not knowing what God is doing in this world. It is not okay to let that struggle draw you away from the Lord. You're called to be like Jacob and to draw near to God and take your struggles to Him and strive with God in the night watches until He blesses you as He's promised to do. You just let me read this before we move on. Isaiah 50, 10, 50, verse 10. Who is among you that fears the Lord and that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Look at that. They're walking in darkness and they have no light, not because they don't fear the Lord nor because they're not obeying the Lord. They are fearing the Lord and they are obeying the Lord, and yet there's this sense, there's this perception on their end that they are continuing to walk in darkness. What does the Lord call His people to do in that moment? Let Him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. This is what the Puritans referred to. I'm going into it now. This is what the Puritans referred to as the long night of the soul, dark night of the soul. You're praying, you're fasting, you're seeking the Lord, you're meditating on His Word, you're trying to order your steps according to His will, and yet you can't sense the light of His countenance shining upon you. You pray and it's as if the heavens were girded over with iron and nothing is getting past the ceiling. You walk through this world and it's as if God could not be further away from what you perceive to be real. This verse, Isaiah 50 verse 10, tells us that that is a true and genuine experience that even the most faithful of God's people will be called to have. What are we to do when that time comes? We are to continue trusting in the Lord and we are to continue relying on our God, knowing that His promises are true and He will see every one of them fulfilled in our lives. We need to move into the third and final point. I'll try to be brief here. Can't make any promises. If you need to leave, you can leave. Paul not only praises God as the blessed and the the only sovereign God, he not only praises God as the immortal God, he not only praises God as the invisible God, but then finally he reaches the climax of this doxology where he ends it with a prayer. A prayer for the increase of God's honor and eternal dominion as king. See that in verse 16. He ends, now to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. Now when Paul's talking about God's honor and God's eternal dominion, you could categorize that simply under the phrase, God's glory. Let the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what Paul's praying here. And what he prays here is not only the heartbeat of every Christian who has come to know the Lord. We all long for the honor and the eternal dominion of God to be increased in this world. What's important to realize is that this is also the purpose and the goal behind everything that God does as sovereign king. Everything that God does is to the end that His name would be hallowed and that His dominion would be more fully realized in this world. Isn't that the main thing we're to pray about? Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Let Your kingdom come. We're praying for God's hallowedness, His honor, His glory to be unveiled before the world more fully. And we're praying for His kingdom to come. His eternal dominion to be manifested in this world more fully than it is right now. That's the number one thing Jesus told us to pray about because that is the number one thing God is working to accomplish in this world. In other words, everything that God does is pro reggae. Everything that God does is for the king. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, you guys know this. God's made known to us the mystery of His will, and the mystery of His will is this, the establishment of an administration that is suitable for the fullness of times. What is that administration? Paul says, gloriously, it is the summing up of all things in Christ that's God's will and that's what He's orchestrating all of human history towards. That climactic moment when King Jesus steps down out of glory and all things are summed up under Him. You guys know this, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Jesus must reign until He puts all of His enemies under His feet. That's what God is working towards even now. Did you know that? Ever since Jesus' ascension into glory, remember Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, when Jesus ascended into glory, what did the Father say to Him? Sit at My right hand until... What? I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is the Father speaking to the Son saying, Son, your work is completed in securing glory for your people. Now sit down and let me make all of your enemies your footstool. God has never, the Father has never said He would serve anyone else like that. See, the Father is pro reggae. The Father is for the King. And just as he has established his king in Zion, his holy hill, he is working to bring all things into subjection to his king. Now, here's the kicker. We, as the church of the living God, and as those who are called by the name of that king, we are called to do the same. You and I are called to be pro too. You and I are called to be laboring for the honor and the eternal dominion of the king. And we saw last week Van Till had that very simple understanding of the Christian life. What is it? Pro reggae. Been saying it all week or all, all morning, right? He went on to write this. And if please stay with me, we're almost done. You guys with me? Yeah? Okay. Give me some assurance. Help me know you're awake. All right. Van Til went on to write this If Jesus Christ really is the king, then it is the believer's duty to press the kingship of Christ upon every area of life. If Jesus really is king, then it is the believer's duty to press his kingship in every area of life. Do you believe that? to press his crown rights upon this world in every way that the Lord allows to labor to see his honor and eternal dominion more fully realized in this world. He goes, he goes on to write, There is not a square inch of space where, nor a minute of time, when the believer in Christ can withdraw from the responsibility of being a soldier of the cross." Satan must be driven from the field and Christ must reign. Do you have that? Man, I wish I could say what we used to say in baseball. Do Do you have that something in vinegar down inside your gut that makes you want to fight for the king? Satan is the intruder. He is the invader. It is our responsibility to go attack his gates. Drive him out of the field. Do you really believe that? Because if you do, that will radically change the way you live your day-to-day life. That will change what you watch on TV. That will change how you drive your car. That will change what you let yourself eat and how much you let yourself eat. That will change how you go about doing family devotions and praying over your children that will change how you treat your wife. That will change how you treat your neighbor. That will change how you act in the workplace. Your coworkers better be able to look at you and say, I don't agree with him, I don't like him, but I know he lives for the king. They ought to be able to say that, and we should not be ashamed to let our coworkers and our neighbors and our family members know that about us. Well, I was getting out last week. We've been shamed into silence, guys. In so many ways that so many more ways than we now recognize. Sorry. Satan must be driven from the field and Christ must reign. Van Til goes on to say victory in this realm is absolutely certain at the end of time. The day of Christ appearing. That will happen. But that victory calls us to action in the present. We must, in the present, have the courage to start with the program of the eradication of evil from the universe. It will require courage to do that. Now, as we end, where and how do we go about doing this? Where and how do we press the crown rights of Jesus Christ upon the world around us. How do we do that? How do you do that? You're not preachers. You're not missionaries. You're not theologians studying out in the university. You're just common, everyday, average Christians, right? What are you supposed to do about this? Well... I think it starts with realizing that you are not, a phrase that I heard this week, you are not merely Christian ministry utilitarians. You like that? I like that. You know what that means? Your sole purpose in the church is not merely to support the one who is doing the work of the ministry. See, we have this two-tier of view of life, right? We have this sacred, this secular view of life. And what we don't understand fully yet is that there is no place in the Christian life that is not sacred. There's no place in your life where Jesus Christ does not assert His dominion and demand allegiance. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, not so that you would sit in a pew and support the ministry of another man. Jesus Christ purchased you with His blood to make you a priesthood. And what do priests do? They worship and they serve and they minister unto the Lord. That's all of their lives. That's all that they do. They worship, minister, and serve the Lord. Well, in your priesthood, where do you begin doing that? You begin doing that right where the Lord has placed you. You begin doing that by using the abilities that Christ has given you as a means of making Christ's lordship known. Not only in word, but also in deed. Indeed. Whether in your workplace or in the government or in our homes or in our neighborhoods, we are called to live for the glory of the king and to engage in the spiritual battle of his spiritual kingdom. Now, I don't have so much more to say. I'm not going to say it. I I don't know if you realize this. We're so trapped in Western civilization's fall that we don't realize that Jesus Christ actually is still advancing His kingship around the world. Did you know that? Did you know in defiance to the communist regime in China, Jesus Christ is owning Chinese citizens for His glory, and there is nothing that the Chinese government can do about it? Did you know that? That's exciting doesn't matter what oppression the Chinese government lays upon the church, Jesus Christ will continue to plunder their house for His glory, and there's nothing they can do about it. Man, that's glorious news. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Somalia, Nigeria, South Africa, America, Canada, Jesus is pressing the crown rights of His kingship and He is owning citizens for His kingdom. And there's nothing that the rulers and the kings of the world can do to stop it. Yeah, amen. Amen. Now, we are called to join Jesus in that great work. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to go forward and press Christ's crown rights in every area of your life and with every opportunity the Lord gives to you? Whether that's staying home and being a faithful mother and a godly mother raising your children, or whether that's going out into your workplace and working 9 to 5 or 6 to 10 p.m., whatever the day looks like for you. Every moment is sanctified and called to be sanctified for the King. Are you ready to go give it to Him? My point here is don't let this simply be, a th- be theoretical in your minds. Don't let this just be a theoretical truth. Christ is King up there. Someday we're going to see Him. doesn't really impact me now. I'm really laboring this. I'm sorry. but Over everything in our lives and over each moment that the Lord gives us, our mindset and our attitude must be fixed on this examining question. What at this moment and in this place will exalt the eternal dominion and honor of Jesus Christ? What at this moment and in this place will increase the world's perception of my God's honor and my God's dominion? As we go forth asking those questions, may the Lord give us grace to manifest the glorious reign and kingship of Christ wherever we go you pray with me. Father, I I love you. Lord, we love you. And we long for that day when your kingship, your kingly reign will be fully revealed for all the world to see. Lord, we labor unto that day. Please give us grace and wisdom to know how to take the scepter that is in your hand and extend it in our lives as we move forward in this world let us not fear Lord let us not be cowards let us be courageous for the sake of our King or may you fill us with your spirit and teach us to put on the whole armor of God and give us victory in our battling and encourage us to keep fighting the good fight until the day you come. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.